Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. I want you to take note of how Vayikra is set up and structured. If you will, look in your Bible over to chapter 5 and find chapter 5 and verse 26, which is the last portion of this Torah portion. And I'm sure that as you're looking there, let me see if I can see the perplexed looks on your face, you will not find in most of your Bibles that there is a chapter 5, verse 26. And what you will discover in most of your English Bibles, this is one of the differences between a Hebrew Bible and the English Bible, such as the King James, is that chapter 5 is extended through verse 26 in the Hebrew Bible, but in your Bible it's already begun chapter 6, and so it's actually chapter 6 through verse 7, that in fact they take the first seven verses of your chapter 6 and they include it in chapter 5 because they don't want to break up the thought that's being expressed by chapter 5 into chapter 6. They they think chapter 6 begins more properly at verse 8. For you. And so tonight, that'll be the last point that we'll cover. You might want to flag that or note that in your Bible because you're going to find there's a, there's a very strong reason why the Hebrews in their Bible specifically include that first paragraph of chapter 6 into the previous teaching and included in this particular teaching. A little bit of an overview here of Leviticus in this particular portion, so let me just touch on these and we'll get into the detail here in just a little bit. This Leviticus starts out with instructions for the priest. That's actually what Leviticus means. In other words, instructions for the Levites, for the priests. Vayikra, the actual name, comes from the first verse where it says, And the Lord called, and he called. Vayikra, and he called. What will follow in the book of Leviticus is a tremendous amount of instruction to the priesthood about how to officiate, how to conduct the temple service. And right off the bat, we're going to start talking about in this first portion about how to bring a sacrifice, an individual man, how to bring a young bull to be sacrificed, or if it's a sheep or a goat, or if it be a bird, or if there's going to be a grain offering. And then it gives some specific instructions, and it says, for example, that the bread that is brought can never be leavened and put upon an altar. It must be unleavened bread, and that they are not permitted to put honey onto any sacrifice on the altar, but... Salt is to be put on every sacrifice. Have you ever heard the expression, well, you've got to take that with a grain of salt? That comes from the ancient temple service. Every sacrifice put on the altar had to be salted down. And so it's a very common expression throughout the generations when you talk about something being received properly or in proper measure, well, we always use the expression, well, you've got to take that with a grain of salt. In other words, if it's going to be put on the altar, it has to have some salt on it. It also introduces for us instruction concerning peace offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. And in the next portion that we'll have, Sav, it will specifically go into the law of each of those offerings, how they are to be done. But they're initially mentioned to us here. It talks about sacrifices that come from an individual. It gives instructions with regard to if the whole congregation wishes to come and the whole congregation is going to present a sacrifice, how that will be done. Sacrifices that are going to come from leaders, how leaders will come and present sacrifices, and then how common people, if a common man wants to come and make a sacrifice to the Lord as to what will be acceptable you know, to the Lord for that. 
And then it begins to touch into this subject just ever so briefly, which is really the meat of the instruction that will follow later on. It deals with the subject of intentional versus unintentional sins. And one of the things that I point out to people that we're going to note here, begins here, and we'll continue through the book, all these sacrifices really that come and are presented, they're all for unintentional sins. Unintentional sins. Sin by mistake. You didn't mean to do it. You were ignorant. You didn't understand properly. You hadn't been trained. You hadn't been taught. But the other sacrifices for intentional sin, you find there's not a lot of instruction about that. And there's a reason for that, because there's no sacrifice in the law for intentional sin. If you willfully, defiantly sin against God, the law specifies death. doesn't give you a sacrifice for that. In fact, what the instructions really begin to emphasize is how your heart is when you come before the Lord is very key. Just coming and presenting an animal isn't acceptable to the Lord. It has to come from the heart, which is, of course, what Moses has been trying to teach us and will teach us later on in the Torah. Just because you go and do the act, but your heart is far from the Lord, you have not done it to the Lord. And the Lord knows. You might be able to fool other people, but the Lord's not fooled. And so all of these instructions are given with the idea as to where's the sincerity of your heart? What was the thing that you purposed in your heart with regard to it? And it addresses, and the reason why that extra portion there of chapter 6 is tied into this is because the portion, as you'll see there in the first part of chapter 6, deals with the issue of insincerity. It deals with that. And it's really, that's the reason why they say it's tied back in, because you don't have the full instruction of these things from Moses if you're not dealing with where's your heart at with regard to this. I want you to go with me now. I want to walk you through the sequence of what Leviticus begins with here is the presentation of an individual bringing a young bull. It's kind of interesting that the Lord picks this first for instruction, but he starts with it. He says an individual man comes before the Lord and he's going to sacrifice a young bull to the Lord. And a young bull, by the way, was a pretty major sacrifice. Usually they brought sheep or goats, and most people would bring the turtle dove, or that's usually what they could afford. If you could afford a young bull to be sacrificed to the Lord, why, you probably had been blessed well by the Lord. You had cattle, and, and if you know, if you're around cattlemen and so forth, well, you always keep the, you keep the female cows so that you can build the herd. You only keep some bulls you know, to father the herd, to mature the herd, but your young bulls are just going to eat a lot of grain, a lot of food, and so we either eat them, or in this particular case, he said, bring them, worship the Lord with them. So this is the story, this is the sequence of events for a man to come and offer a sacrifice. Follow along with me as I begin to read now Leviticus 1, verses 2 through 9, as it describes this sequence. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar 
that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the soot over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering for fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. In the course of this instruction, there were seven steps involved with the process of a man bringing an offering. First, he had to bring a bull of the herd or of the flock without defect. What that means was that it had to be of value. If you were to go out and just find some stray cow, that would not be an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. It had to come from you. It had to be of value. You had to count it as value. And in fact, this was one of the first steps of any gift or giving that is done the Lord instructs us on. The first level of giving, the first offering that you give, it has to be something of value. In fact, the value has to be such that when you give it, you call it a sacrifice. It has value. You had to sacrifice this. And so, therefore, the term sacrifice is not so much emphasizing the animal being slaughtered, but rather the gift, the gift that is being presented by the person who comes with the sacrifice. Without defect, and the priests would make that determination, it couldn't be diseased, it couldn't be uh, wounded, it couldn't have blemish, it couldn't have a broken leg or some other problem with it. It had to be a perfectly fine, healthy, complete animal. So if, say, in your herd, you had an animal who had injured itself, and you said, well, I'll give that one to the Lord. Uh-uh. No. It has to be a good one. It has to be a value for it to be acceptable to the Lord. By the way, the same things are done amongst yourselves. How many of you, if your friend came to you and said, oh, I have a gift for you. Oh, good. What is it? Oh, I have a, new, I have a chair for you. Oh, wonderful. Great. What kind of, you know, show me the chair. And the chair was broken. What would you think of the gift? Well, why did you give this chair to me? Well, it's broken. I couldn't use it anymore. I decided to give it to you. Well, I don't need your junk. Can you imagine bringing in a defective sacrifice to the Lord? That's the way the Lord would regard it. Well, what are you, just getting rid of it? You just, you just want me to get rid of your stuff that you didn't want? No, that's not the acceptable gift. That's not the acceptable sacrifice. Then he would come in and he would lay hands upon the sacrifice. And actually what's not elaborated here but is given instruction elsewhere, that's when he would put his hands upon and he would have to, with his mouth, make declaration and confession to the Lord. If he was there to thank the Lord for what the Lord had done for him and he wanted to give him a whole burnt offering, a praise offering to the Lord, he would confess his praises to God while putting his hands upon it. If it was for sin offering or guilt offering, Lord, I made a mistake. He would make his confession, and basically what he would be doing is he would be saying, Lord, this animal, take it as a substitute for my mistake. And I put my mistake, I put my life, my burden upon him. And generally, had you been in the temple service, had you been part of the tabernacle service, and you'd been there standing and watching this service, that's about the point that you would have seen something very moving most men were overwhelmed with emotion at this point. And there are recounts given in which that those that would come and to do this, literally they would fall down. 
they couldn't they couldn't even stand. They had put the burden upon the animal and they would look down and they would they would begin to lose it. They would suddenly realize this animal's innocent. It's I who should be dying. It's I who should be paying the price. But but instead this one will die in my stead. And remorse and repentance would come at that moment. And at the, usually at that point, the priest would render assistance. If the man was not able, then the priest would step in and help him. But for those who could and were able, the next duty was for the man who brought the sacrifice. He was handed the knife, and he would slay the animal. I had some friends back um, a couple of years ago who invited us, some Messianic brethren, and they invited us down to their place, and they um, had goats. They had a, a flock of goats. And they invited us to come down that they were going to slaughter a kid and we were going to have a large feast that day. Several brethren would come down and they were going to slow cook the, the, uh, the, the goat kid there. And so they were going to slow cook it for about four hours over their smoker. And so they went out there first thing that morning at about, well, first of all, we arrived at about uh, one o'clock and they said, well, uh, it's going to be a little longer cooking. And I said, well, what do you mean, a little long? He said, well, I don't think it'll be cooked until about 4 o'clock. I said, oh, gee, I thought, uh, thought you wanted us down here at 1. He said, well, we did. Uh, but uh, we, didn't, we didn't get the kid on the, uh, the grill cooking up. Oh, oh. And then he began to recount, well, we went out there at the right time. We went out there at 8 o'clock. And we took the kid. And the two of us, we prepared to slaughter it. And we had to ball our eyes out for a couple hours before we could do it. Now, they weren't even making sacrifice. These are grown men. They weren't even making sacrifice. The Lord took them a couple of hours because they were looking at this is life and it's going to die. And the flesh of the animal is going to then be life to us. Well, in the same kind of way, the man would bring the animal and there was a time where he would have to come to terms with this because of his mistake, because of his missing the mark for whatever it was, the animal was going to die in his place. It would be substituted for him. And there was a lot of men who would have to grip with the fact this animal doesn't, it, it should be me. It should be me who's dying, not the animal. It's innocent. In any case, they would slay the sacrifice. It would try, the priest would try to get the man to do it so that he could fully participate. So he would see and learn there's a cost to sin. There's a cost to this behavior. The priests would be ready and they would catch the blood of the animal as the animal's throat was slit, its heart would continue to pump and, and vacate the blood from the animal and they would trap the blood in the basins and collect it. And then they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar. Depending on the type of sacrifice, the priests were instructed as to which way they were to sprinkle the altar with it. And then the priests would come over and assist the man and they would skin the animal and prepare it for the altar. At the same time, there was other priests who would now be preparing the altar, specifically with the amount of wood, so there would be adequate fuel and fire to consume the size of the sacrifice. In the case of a young bull, we're talking a very large fire. A young bull is a large animal. In fact, in the temple service, we are told that there were at least up to 20 priests, 20 men, that would be associated with the slaughter of a bull. It was that many men needed to prepare it, prepare the altar, and for the priest to be able to take it up. And they would arrange the wood uh, up on the altar in somewhat of a kind of a log cabin structure. They literally would build a structure 
that the that the sacrifice would be placed on, so that as that wood was consumed and also consumed the the sacrifice, it would compress down and continue. It wouldn't fall off or things like they would arrange this so that it would consume as completely as possible the pieces of the sacrifice. The sacrifice was then um, prepared into pieces and they would go up and arrange, the sons of Aaron would arrange the sacrifice basically in the shape of the animal. They wouldn't just haphazardly say, place the, the leg over here and the shoulder there and so forth. In other words, they would arrange the animal so that it was in its basic shape as that animal before the Lord, although it was in pieces at this point. And it would be a rain. And then the fire would burn up onto it. And in the case of a burnt offering, the priest would be back. And then it's kind of a little bit like going by one of those like outback steakhouse places. I don't know if you've ever been in the parking lot in the evening. You know, the soothing aroma. You know, the fat's being burned. The meat is being cooked. And you would smell this unbelievably delicious fragrance coming from the altar like a big, wonderful barbecue pit kind of thing. And it was called the soothing aroma. It was then said that if when you caught the fragrance of the soothing aroma, that that was the fragrance that the Lord was smelling. And if it was pleasant to you, then it was pleasant to him. And it was a way of assuring the man that he had been accepted. His sacrifice had been accepted to the Lord. His gift had been accepted. And so when he would leave, and in the case of a whole burnt offering, of course, it would remain on the altar. But in the case of other offerings, portions would come off the altar after it was pretty well cooked up there. Certain portions went to the priests. That was the food that they ate. Portions went back to the man. It would be wrapped. It would be given back to him. And he would take that back to his house. And what would be waiting for him? His family. All of his friends all of his brethren are there. They would be all ready. They would have, uh, the, the wife and the family had prepared a feast to the Lord. And they would come back and they would serve this. And they would all eat of the sacrifice. And so that the man could give testimony to his family and to his friends and all his neighbors who had come. And they would join in with him in worshiping the Lord, enjoying this with the Lord. That they were eating the same things that the Lord had of his table, the same gift that he had received. And the priests would be eating of the same. And so it was a, a rather joyous activity in time. Not unlike too much you inviting your friends over for your backyard barbecue. You know, I have a, a smoker in my backyard. I love to do this. I love to get the big old piece of meat. There's no way I could eat all of it. Go out there and smoke that thing for a couple of hours. Bring the friends over, family over, and sit down and eat a feast. You know, and it's, it is very enjoyable. Uh, to do that. Can you imagine doing that? Only the whole setting is the worship of the Lord. Not just, you know, the just for friendship, but, but you were really, the testimony was you were thanking the Lord for what he had done, the good thing that he had done. In the case of a Thanksgiving offering, it was if any good thing had happened, any wonderful thing had happened to your family, the father of the family would want to really thank the Lord for it. So this was a way to do it to thank the Lord and invite your friends and family to come over with you. Now, having said this, and we've gone through this one simple procedure of how an individual man brings the sacrifice, we've got to deal with the age-old question that Israel has been dealing with and is to this day being dealt with theologically. So I don't want to move too heavily into theology, but we need to address this. What is the purpose of sacrifices? Why did God specify this kind of worship? 
Why did he say to Israel to do this? Why did he instruct Moses and the priesthood and establish altars and all of that kind of business? We don't do that today. I don't know of any one of you that has an altar out in your backyard or set up a tabernacle and you do this. I don't know. We don't have any priests running around that are doing this and so forth. And we've been around here for about the way we're doing it right now for the last 2,000 years. We still believe in the same God that made these rules. You know, so what, what was the purpose of all of these? And by the way, uh, Judaism wrestles with this. You know, Judaism doesn't have the temple service. They don't have altars. They don't have the Levite priesthood, the sons of Aaron doing this. So what, you know, they're studying the Torah too. What do they think of this? What do they think of these instructions? I mean, the instructions I've read here, they're meaningless to us, aren't they? We're not going to do this tomorrow. Israel's not going to do this tomorrow. So why did God give this? And since we know that every word of God, there's no idle word, every one of his perfect, forever settled in heaven. Why did God have these instructions in there? If he knew there was going to be a time coming that we'd be rumbling along for a couple of thousand years and we wouldn't have any sacrifices, what's the reason for it? So I'm going to take you back, and we're going to answer this question from the Jewish perspective first, because Judaism has wrestled with this, and then I'm going to walk you into the New Testament. I'm going to show you where these passages in the New Testament are dealing with the very same question the Jews have been asking for years. Because Jews ask the same questions. Why? What's the purpose of this? God, why did, why did you specify it this way? To do it this particular way? I mean, what's the meaning of it? And is it really, if it's just symbolic, I mean, you know, and we understand the reason for it. I mean, why do, why do, why do we need to know about this? Doesn't look like we're going to be doing it anytime soon. So what a benefit is it to understand such things? And of course, you already know that in our day and age, why there are many teachers who said, oh, those are done away with. I'm sure every one of you have heard someone in your lifetimes, oh, that's all done away with. That's archaic stuff. That You'll even find some rabbis saying that. I want to give you three reasons why the argument against sacrifices. These are three arguments that come from Judaism. Why we don't have sacrifices anymore. And in fact, the guy I'm going to quote to, who kind of is the lead guy who brings this argument forward in Judaism, is a guy named Maimonides, and he wrote a book, a study book about the Torah, and one of the books he wrote was Guide to the Perplexed. And I love the book. I I like Maimonides. I think he should have named the book uh, The Guide for the Confused, personally, Uh, because he departs from what Moses says. And there are other rabbis who argue with Maimonides. But for the most part, Maimonides has been a very, very strong rabbi that's affected and shaped Judaism. You'll be amazed to find out how the Christian teachers love what Maimonides has to say. And Christian teachers, and that's the reason why I teach you, is this is where Christian teachers get this from. They don't get this from their own independent study of Scripture. They get it from this man, the same things that they agree with him about. Maimonides put forth three great arguments as to why essentially sacrifices their purpose and why we don't have them anymore. One, that God used indirect methods to lead Israel. Basically what he's saying is this. He went back to the story of the Exodus. You remember when Moses and the children of Israel got ready to leave Egypt, it says specifically, and God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines directly to the promised land, but rather led them into the wilderness. Now, we know the purpose was God was going to take us to the promised land, but instead of taking us directly to the promised land, right up the coast along the Mediterranean Sea through the Philistine territories, he said there would be a war, it would have discouraged the people, so let's go by the way of the wilderness so that the people will not get discouraged. And so he says, look, God 
is using indirect methods, and that's really what we have here. You see, the other archaic peoples, the other ancient peoples, they were doing all manner of sacrificing. And so what God did was, rather than just shocking Israel into the new understanding that you don't need sacrifices and so forth, we'll do a little transitional teaching. So we'll kind of let Israel kind of have some sacrifices like other nations and do worship God like other nations worship God, and, and, but I'll move them and transition them to the one true God and so forth. And Maimonides puts forth this argument and says, well, God, that was what God was purposing with sacrifices, that he would give you all of these symbols. But that's really not what God wanted to do, but that he would do that because we, well, basically we were just a little too stupid, you know, to, uh, to make the transition to really understand the eternal, invisible God. And so we would need this sort of thing to help us with it. And to advance that argument further, he quotes from where the prophets said, God does not desire sacrifices. Now, I'm going to rattle off a series of references to you, but I want to read one in particular to you. Psalms 40, verse 6. The Lord does not desire sacrifices. It says it. Psalms 51, verse 16. It says it. Isaiah 1, 11. Isaiah the prophet said, God doesn't desire sacrifices. He says he already has all the cattle. Why does he want all your sacrifices? Jeremiah 6, 20. Chapter 7, 22 and 23. Amos chapter 5, verse 22. Micah 6. Verses 6 through 8, you'll find them all sharing the same thing. Here's the prophets, and they're all saying, God does not want your sacrifices. In fact, let me turn with you and show you one in particular, Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 20, which ties directly into the instruction that we're looking at here. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 22. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Sounds to me like Jeremiah is saying that God it, God didn't really purpose this instruction in the Torah when Israel came out of Egypt about sacrifices, what God really wanted the people to do was to listen to his voice and obey the Lord from their heart. And that somehow this sacrifice thing got fitted in here. Kind of had to kind of do it, but it was a kind of substitutionary thing. And Maimonides really takes that verse to heart and adds it with the other prophets. And so he arguments, he says, look, listen to what the prophets say. God really doesn't desire sacrifices. What God really wants is he wants you to seek justice. He wants you to do walk humbly before God. He wants your heart right before the Lord. Now, you heard me when I described the process of the man bringing the sacrifice in and of him humbling his heart and repenting, and it was a heart-moving experience. He said, what God really wants is that. He doesn't really want the sacrifice. Therefore, if we were to learn that that's what God really wants, we don't need the sacrifice thing. That was what Maimonides was arguing. And then he went further with another argument. He kind of add this in, and he said, look, he said, um, Israel was instructed, for example, to slaughter sheep and lambs. And the reason why God gave that instruction was that Egypt didn't, didn't like shepherds, and they didn't like sheep, and slaughtering a sheep was like one of the most repulsive things that you could possibly do to the Egyptians. 
And they said, so what God, since he was judging all of the gods of Egypt, really what the sacrificial thing was, it was about taking on the gods of Egypt. And in fact, one of the gods that Egypt had was a young bull. You know, you remember the golden idol? That, that was an Egyptian god. And so what God was basically trying to do, he was demonstrating to the other heathen nations by Israel taking the, their gods and slaughtering them as sacrifices. He was proving that he's really God and their God wasn't God. And so he argues that point. And he says, well, that's, that's one of the other purposes of God. God was proving that the other gods of the nations were uh, not gods, that, that you know, he would slaughter them, proving that he was God. In this world today, there are still people in this world today that think cattle should not be slain, ever. Some, they think they're gods, they're their ancestors, whatever, they reverence them, they honor them. A lot of people in the world starving to death, but they won't eat beef. And so the idea of, of slaughtering a young bull would be very offensive to other nations and cultures. And here's God giving the command. So Maimonides is saying, see, see what God is doing. That's obviously one of the purposes is to slam dunk the other gods, slit their throats, you know, right in front of the people. And so he was saying, Israel, you could do that and demonstrate that I'm the one true God. Here's the counter to the argument. In the case of using indirect methods, in the case of the using indirect methods, the Lord himself says, concerning these commandments, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all mine ordinances and do them. Nowhere in God's instructions when he says keep and do, do you hear any allowances for, well, uh, after you kind of figure out what the purpose of it was, you don't have to do it anymore. I don't find any instruction whatsoever in the scripture where God ever says, after you guys get smart, you don't have to keep these commandments. Now, believe you me, there's a lot of people in the world that believe that, but I don't find any evidence in Scripture that says that. He just flat says, you will keep them and you will do them and live. So it's a pretty obvious counter to the idea that God is using indirect methods. The fact is, God's methods are pretty direct. His commandments are, are specific. They're not vague, and they're not hard to keep. With regard to the issue of the prophets saying that God does not uh, desire sacrifices, the argument that is advanced is, wait a minute, there's an intrinsic value in the sacrifice that is being overlooked, and that that's really what the prophets were talking about. The prophets weren't talking about, don't do the sacrifice. What they were talking about was, don't do the sacrifice and miss the intrinsic value of what you're doing. Don't stop short. Get to the real essence, the intrinsic value of what God has called you to do, that of obeying from the heart. And specifically, they emphasize the sweet aroma. If you don't smell the sweet aroma from the sacrifice, you've not completed the commandment. You've not kept it. In, in other words, if it doesn't come to the point where you and the Lord, something's different between you and the Lord, then you didn't complete it. The third argument that counters it is that there were no idolaters after the flood. If, if God wanted us to have these sacrifices so that we could slam dunk the idolaters, if you'll remember, Noah, after the flood, he and his family are the only ones. <laughs> There's nobody else in the world but them. So why did God say to Noah, I want you to take one clean of every animal, a male, and I want you to sacrifice it to me? 
Where's the idolaters who are supposed to be seeing all their gods being slaughtered? They've already been judged by God. There, none of them exist. So why is God, in the, in the restarting of the earth, why does the first form of worship, does he call for Noah to sacrifice animals to God? That question has to be answered if you're going to say stopping idolaters is the real reason for no sacrifice. Now let's go a step forward. Let's look at the argument really for sacrifice. What is it that the scripture really tells us about sacrifice? And if you would, turn with me. And I'm going to kind of do a little switcheroo for you because it's going to sound like I'm giving a pretty good argument against the sacrifice, but in it you're going to see the reason for it. If you will, turn with me to Psalms 40, the passage that I mentioned to you that uh, indicated God didn't desire sacrifice. Let's examine that just a little bit more. Psalms 40 and verse 6. Actually, we're going to look at a couple of verses there. And this is a very, very profound teaching that we in the New Covenant need to pay real close attention to. I'm going to show you the reason for it here in just a moment. Psalms 40 and verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired, my ears thou hast opened. Burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, thy law is within my heart. The instruction is, it goes like this, what God is really desiring is that while sacrifice wasn't the real thing that God wanted to do, it's something that brought us forward so that we could come to terms with God, that we came and and approached God. But what God really wanted to do was to find us and us to find him. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the scroll. It's written of me. Real identity in God identifying and understanding God. And then the real purpose is of the heart, to obey from the heart. Well, this is what the psalmist is talking. This is what you'll find every prophet is talking about. And by the way, this is what the book of Hebrews is talking about, because Hebrews quotes from this passage of Scripture. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 1, and we'll read the 18 verses here. The people who would, in the New Covenant, who would like to say to you, see, these sacrifices, they're not around with us anymore. Well, what we need to do is we need to examine the whole text of what is being taught, because what's being taught here in Hebrews, quoting from the Old Testament extensively, obviously the writer of Hebrews is trying to bring out what the teaching is back in the Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament as his base text, and now he's trying to elaborate and give the deeper meaning. He's trying to give the instruction. He's not creating replacement Scripture. He's teaching what the Scripture back there in Tanakh in the Old Testament says and what it means. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. For the law, since it has... Now, how many of you have a only a shadow? You can take the word only out. That word doesn't exist in the Greek text. For the law, since it has a shadow of the things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. The idea of coming to the altar to present a sacrifice, drawing near to God. But coming every year can't make you perfect. The fact you come every year means you're not made perfect. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have the consciences of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. 
for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's exactly what Moses teaches. There's no sacrifice for willful, defiant sin. All the sacrifices here for unintentional just teach the mercy of God. God's mercy is endures forever. If he knows in your heart you made a mistake, you were ignorant, you didn't mean to. You know what? I got news for you. I got great news for you. The very character of God is such that upon looking upon your heart, his mercy is extended to you and you're forgiven. You do the same to your own brethren. You do the same to your own family members. You do it to your own children. If you see that they made a mistake and they didn't mean to, you might be upset about the damage being done for a little bit and want to get it corrected, but you're going to forgive them. They don't have to pay you. How many of you, when a, when a man you know didn't mean to do it and he comes up and he apologizes, you say, oh, oh, it's okay, it's all right, it's all right. No problem. You give mercy to him without hesitation. You don't exact payment from him. You're full of mercy. God's full of mercy. He's full of more mercy than the water in the ocean. But he goes on to say, these sacrifices didn't take away sin. That's not what did it. The animal sacrifice didn't do it. Verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book, the scroll of the book. It is written to me to do thy will, O God. He quoted Psalms 40, verse 6 and 7, that same passage we just read. Hebrews is talking about this same passage in Psalms. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, thou hast not taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua the Messiah once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies had been made his footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected all for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And now where there is forgiveness for these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, if you were to stop there in your study of why do we have sacrifices, you really haven't answered the question why you have sacrifices, but it sounds like it was God's purpose and intent for sacrifices to go away, that the stage was being set for the Messiah who would come, who would make one sacrifice. Instead of these sacrifices that come repeatedly, these animal sacrifices, the temple service, the Levite order and all that, the daily sacrifice, all these different burnt offerings and guilt offerings, which didn't really take away sin, that when Messiah would come, he would make one sacrifice, and that one would be the one that would take away sin. Therefore, we don't need the other sacrifices, right? That's what it sounds like he's saying, right? Only let's go a little bit further. Let's see what else the prophets say. Let's see what else the New Testament says about this subject. Go with me now to Psalms 51, verse 14. 
Psalms 51 is the penitential psalm of David. This is the psalm after he sinned with Bathsheba, after he had Uriah the Hittite killed, and after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet that he had sinned. This is his confessional that he made. And in verse 14 through verse 19, listen to what he said. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, for my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. Sounds like that same message we've been hearing. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The sacrifice of the broken heart, the contrite spirit, is the acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. He doesn't look down on it. By thy favor do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. See, it turns out the real purpose for sacrifices is to really rejoice before the Lord. That pleasure to come into his presence. But to come into his presence correctly, just bringing the animal is insufficient. You have to bring your heart. You have to bring your spirit. You have to approach the Lord from the real you. Sacrifice means of value. It means of you, not just the animal. And the instructions that we learn from sacrifices are to prepare us to come before the Lord. And if we fail to learn that, then sacrifices do us absolutely no good. Now, the truth of the matter is we've learned that the real sacrifice is that of Yeshua the Messiah, the one-time sacrifice. But those other sacrifices that we do, it's what prepares us to come before the Lord and put our heart and our spirit before him correctly. And in the failure to do that, we've made no sacrifice. We have no benefit of sacrifice. Let's go a step further with this. Look back now to Hebrews chapter 10. You know, the passage that looked like New Testament is saying we can get rid of them. But look what he says a little bit further in the same chapter at verses 19 through 22. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua. Remember, Yeshua is our one-time sacrifice. It's the perfect sacrifice. And since we have confidence in him and assurance to go before God because of him, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Where are you going to learn how to have your conscience sprinkled clean and your bodies washed with pure water unless you understand the instruction of sacrifices? How are you going to understand how to approach boldly through the veil, the very throne of God, unless you have been in there and followed exactly the procedures that are given for the tabernacle and temple service. How are you going to understand the work of Messiah as our great high priest, unless you understand the work of the high priest? 
I dare say if you now take all that teaching about sacrifices away, you are wholly ignorant about the work of Messiah Yeshua and him being our great high priest and his sacrifice. And if you are ignorant of that sacrifice, brethren, and his work as high priest, you have no benefit of him. You're relying on the mercy of God, but you don't have a sacrifice for willful sin. You're still saying, oh God, hey, forgive me, I'm stupid. Yeah, but what about the willful sin? What are we going to do about that? God says, you are deserving of death. So where's the acceptable sacrifice? Because we need to follow this. We need to get this. Look what he says further. Verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If by chance you learn that Messiah is this sacrifice and he is this great high priest, and then you continue, well, we don't have sacrifices. I don't have to worry about that stuff. And you think you can put God in a box. Well, God's going to have to do it. I don't have to come and approach him the way he specified. I don't have to come before him and repent. I don't have to go in and lay my hands on Yeshua, put my sins on his head. I don't have to deal with the fact that he died. I don't have to slit his throat with my sins. We don't have sacrifices anymore. He says, if you don't get that sacrifice, you don't have one. Furthermore, if you claim that you have that sacrifice and then you continue to go on willfully sinning, he's only one time sacrifice. The scripture is very explicit about this, brethren. If you don't get this salvation this time with Yeshua for willful sin, he's not getting on the cross again. You better get it right the first time with him. You better get that sacrifice in place, working, doing what it's supposed to be doing, and you better be doing what that sacrifice specifies and is required of you so you receive the full benefit. Because if you don't, this is what Hebrews says, the very next verse, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, brethren, one of the most frightening things I have ever heard in my life said by religious men, I'm specifically referring to New Covenant, brethren, is that the business of God's sacrificial system, temple service, the service of the altar, is no longer valid today. That that part of the instruction of Moses, call it the ceremonial law, the law of Moses, temple service, whatever you want to call it, that's been done away with. That's been set aside. That is the most frightening words I have ever heard in my life, spoken by a religious man. And the reason is because the very next verse of Hebrews says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the New Testament, brethren. That's the New Testament that says, if you set aside the law of Moses with regard to this business about altars and sacrifices, if God finds two or three witnesses of you, without mercy you receive death. Because you have willfully and defiantly sinned against him. You've rejected the very sacrificial system that he gave for those sins. Now, I've had many discussions with New Covenant Brethren about this subject, and those that have been very defiant about this point, I've had to take them to this verse, and I've done this with some brethren. I've had to sit down and say, Brother, you see that verse right now? 
I'm one of the two witnesses. If God finds another guy, I'm prepared to testify that you've set aside the law of Moses. And according to the New Testament that you believe in, you are worthy of death without mercy. Now, the New Testament just doesn't stop there. It goes further. Because what is it that when you set aside the law of Moses, what have you done? You've set aside the entire altar system. The very altar system that God uses to put the blood of the Messiah on. And this is what it says in the very next verse. How much severer. If you already know setting aside the law of Moses is worthy of death without mercy. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Brethren, it works like this. This same sacrificial system that God has established that is acceptable for the blood of animals to be put upon is the exact same altar system that is acceptable for the blood of the Messiah to go on. And if you're going to say that that altar system and those procedures associated for it, you're pulling that out from under. You're saying they no longer have anything to do with my life. They have no longer to do with my understanding, my worship of God. You pull those out, then the blood of the Messiah, which is on that altar, falls to the ground. There's nothing holding it up. There's nothing sanctifying and specifically saying this is the blood of the Messiah for willful, defiant sin. Because it's the altar that specifies what the blood and the sacrifice is for. Not the priest. The altar. They have to slay it on a particular side. There's a particular way that the sacrifices have to be presented to the altar. So that the altar sets the reference and says, this is a sin offering. This is a guilt offering. This is a free will offering. This is the offering, the Lamb of God offering. And it's the Lamb of God offering and that blood that sits on the altar. If you pull the altar out, that blood goes to the ground and it, now you walk on it. And the logic here, what the Hebrew writer is saying, if you think it's bad to take away the altar service, wait till you find out what the punishment is for walking on the blood of the Messiah and insulting the Spirit of grace, who freely of his own did this for us, who made this altar system. We didn't make this. He did. He specified it will be this way. And then he offered the sacrifice on it for us. And if we pull any part of that away, we're insulting him. Oh, well, that's not good enough for me, Lord. See, I'm smarter than you, God. I got it all figured out. All I have to do is proclaim that he's the Messiah. That's it. Ask him to come in and forgive my sins. He's got to do it. No. The reason you and I are saved, brethren is because Yeshua took his blood. He didn't put it on the altar there in Jerusalem or on a tabernacle altar. He took his blood up to an altar that's in heaven, into a temple that's in heaven. And if you say that this altar system down here on the earth, which is after a shadow of that which is in heaven, it's done away with, then it's done away with up there. You're saying the one up in heaven doesn't count. And I guarantee you to this day, there still is an altar in heaven. And it still has the blood of the Messiah sitting on it. For you and me. And if you say altars are no more, well, take that away. And you have made a devastating mistake. You do not understand what the Lord is doing for us. You have not received the instruction of the Lord. So the first point I want to make to you is, why should we have, uh, 
What's the, what, what's the reason we have sacrifices? As new covenant brethren, the first one I will make to you is the Messiah is a sacrifice. The Messiah is the sacrifice. Your testimony needs to be very clear. You're for sacrifices. Because if you're not for my sacrifices, then you're not for the Messiah. You're not interested in him, in the gift of God given to you so you might have life. You're not following God's definition of the gift. You think you can get the gift of life somewhere else. And the second one that we have is that we obviously have a spiritual connection. We know that when he went up into heaven to the real one, that that's the real substance, not, not, the, not the shadow of things down here. Remember Hebrews starts out, he says, for the law, since it is shadow of good things, the shadow of things. Now we know that the real essence is the substance is in the Messiah. It's in temple in heaven, not the one down here. This is just a shadow of those things, a representation, a silhouette, if you will, of those things. The real thing is the spiritual issue. And we know that the flesh is not going to make it into eternity. The flesh of bulls and goats is not going to make it, so they can't be the acceptable sacrifice. You, your flesh, it, 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 it's not going to be acceptable. It's got to be something that's eternal. It's going to make it. So it's obviously the sacrifices that teach us about the spiritual connection. That's the part that works. The intrinsic value. Getting to that point where there's a soothing aroma before the Lord. And you smell it and he smells it and you're together. You're going to get there. That is what we understand to be the spiritual connection. And finally, our New Testament instruction says that when you come before God in your service of God, it's supposed to be like when you come to present a sacrifice. You remember the man? He came and he chose of the herd of the flock without defect. It had value. He put his best forward. He came, he put his hands upon him. He equated his life with it. He realized it was innocent. He was the one that was guilty. It was one that he should be dying. That the real essence of really getting connected, coming near to God. That's what we're really supposed to be doing. And in fact, so what's the instruction given to us? Look with me in Romans chapter 12. This is how Paul instructs us to come. Verse 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What teaches you that? Learning how God wants you to come and present a sacrifice. And any man who's going to come and seek God is going to go through exactly the same process that a man would bring a young bull. If you want to know the will of God, you're going to have to go through the same steps with him. Now, there's a tabernacle in here that Yeshua made, of which he is the great high priest. So how are you going to come before the Lord? You're going to give yourself. You know that the Lord is your sacrifice, but you're going to come in and you're going to say, Lord, thank you for being my sacrifice, but it's me who really should die. It's you who should live. It's me who's worthy of death. And when you present yourself to the Lord as a holy and acceptable sacrifice, he then teaches you and you become close with him and near to him. And now you know the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Because you and the Lord are together. You've done business at the altar together. And Paul's instructing, that's what you're supposed to be getting to. 
If we're going to take the posture, sacrifices are no more, you're never going to do this. You are never going to do what Paul instructed to do. Quite simply, you'll find the rest of the New Testament says that when you come before the Lord, that you're also supposed to present the sacrifice of your lips, that when you praise the Lord, you make an acceptable sacrifice, a gift to the Lord. Why does he call it a sacrifice of the lips? Because you're supposed to approach the Lord in a most reverent and holy manner, just like you would if you were going up to the temple. There's a whole series of things that it says that our giving should be. In fact, our first level of giving, and we know giving is part of our new covenant expression, the first level is for you to turn, learn for it to be like a sacrifice. You need to give something of value, like a sacrifice. Make a sacrifice. And the Lord says there's rules about sacrifices. And when you go to give, like I said to you, don't give, don't give a gift of something broken or defective or something that you thought was cheap or of no value because it won't be an acceptable gift, whether they be to the Lord or your other brethren. You won't want to get one like that either. Now we come to this last part. Turn with me now to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 in your Hebrew Bible. Uh, otherwise, you're looking at Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through um, 7. And let me read to you in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it, and sworn falsely so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by extortion, or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or to the lost thing which he was found or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of those things which he may have done to incur guilt. Do you remember the New Testament instruction where it says, if you have aught with your brother, before you bring alms to the Lord, leave your alms at the altar, go back, resolve the issue with your brother, then come and give alms to the Lord. Do you remember that instruction? Where it comes from is from this passage. If you want to come and make service to God, you want to commune with God, you want to come before his altar, you want to worship the Lord, you want to do business with God, God says, your affairs and how you've been conducting your business before other men is a direct reflection on your behavior before me. In other words, if you're supposed to be coming before me with a sincere heart, true and faithful to me, if you have not been sincere and true and faithful in your relationships with your companions, your brethren, those that you do business with, those that are your neighbors of your family, if you have been insincere and unfaithful with them, by deceit, misappropriation, extortion, whatever it was that you did that was not of a sincere heart. It says your sacrifice is not acceptable to the Lord. You must resolve that first. This is not a new concept. 
the Lord himself says to us, the Messiah himself says, he teaches us, O Lord, forgive us even as we have forgiven others. That's in the case of someone has sinned us against us. It says if they've sinned against us, we need to forgive them if we're going to go ask God to forgive us. And the same thing is said here from this, from the negative side. If you're the one who perpetrated the act, don't come and try to sacrifice to me. You go get that thing corrected with your brother, your friend, your companion first. You make sure that your walk before them is sincere and true and honest before you come and try to offer a sincere, true walk before me. Now, God, who knows our hearts and knows all of our relationships and so forth, he knows. Now, he specifies and he says, as you learn of your guilt, many of us go through life quite ignorantly, not realizing what we've done. But as you become aware of your guilt, go resolve it, get it dealt with, make restitution, correct it. Then you come. Then you come to me. Then you do it. I want to share with you a very fascinating story. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 12, and I want to read to you the moment in which that Nathan, the prophet, came to David. You remember I was telling you about Psalms 51, about David, and uh, how he sinned with Bathsheba. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story. He saw Bathsheba from his upper palace. He desired her. She was married to Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men, and so he dispatched Uriah into the battle asking the commander to put him on the front lines with the purpose in mind that he would be killed by the Amorites so that he might take Bathsheba, he might take the man's wife. Nathan comes to David to confront him about this. And I want you to follow along and listen to what Nathan says to him. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said, There were two men in one city and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight." Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, 
The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this, by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. What was David guilty of? Murder? Sent Uriah off into the battle? David's king of Israel. He's the commander of the host. He has the authority and the right to command any man in the battle. He's not guilty of murder. He has the right to command any man into battle he wishes in any formation that he desires. Is he guilty of adultery? No, the man was dead. She was an available woman. He can have as many wives as he wants. He's king. He took her as his wife. It's not adultery. So what's he guilty of? Stealing sheep and being insincere. He betrayed his friend. Uriah is one of the 30 mighty men of David by name written up in scriptures being a hero of Israel. He was insincere to his friend. He manipulated the situation. He was not faithful to his friend. And as a result, God said, you've sinned against me. You've been insincere in your relationships with me as a result. And that's what this instruction in the Torah is about. It's about if you're going to come before the Lord, one of the things that sacrifices teaches us, if you're going to come and you're going to worship the Lord, you're going to make serious business to the Lord, in the very same manner that you come and present that sacrifice, you better be real careful about your business before other brethren. You're not going to fake the Lord out. You're not going to send in some false sacrifice, some defective thing, and you won't do it to other people. If you do, it'll be unacceptable. It'll be unacceptable then, unacceptable to the Lord. If in the course of your relationships with your brethren, with your family, if you become deceptive, breaking trust, misappropriating their relationship, extorting the relationship with them, you are sinning and you are being unfaithful to God. That's what sacrifices teach us. And in fact, what you're going to be found guilty of is just like David. Oh, you have a right to do those things. But because of your insincerity, you will be found guilty of stealing sheep. And you will have to make restitution. So it turns out that sacrifices have a lot to teach us. And all we've done is really covered the first chapter of Leviticus tonight. You ought to see about all the other instructions sacrifices have to tell us about. We haven't even got to the subject of holiness yet. Wait till you get to that level of what sacrifices teach us. It really gets real interesting then about before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Torah. Thank you, Lord, for you establishing a system, a sacrificial system to teach us, to instruct us. Lord, we confess we're mortals. We're of flesh. You are holy. You're above all the things that we know. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. Your ways above our ways. And for us to bridge the gap, to, to somehow go from where we're at to come near unto you, Lord, you have specified a particular way to do that, a way called sacrifices, a particular way that we must approach you and that we must do it with sincerity and in accordance with your instructions. There is no other way to approach you, Lord. The gap is too far. The distance too great. We can't get there, Lord. We have to follow your way. And as it turns out, you've instructed us and told us that even the system that teaches us, even it is in and of itself not adequate. Just because we learn about it. 
But it's really still you that has to make that sacrifice for us and that we have to recognize you and what you do and receive that properly. Then we have the soothing aroma between us. Then we have the forgiveness of sin. Then we have blood on the altar, a covering for us. Not not the one down here on earth, the one up in heaven, the one in your presence, so that we can reach all the way up to you. So that we can step forward with the full assurance of faith, knowing that you know us and we know you. Lord, of all the lessons there are to learn in Torah and in Scripture, it is this one that outranks them all. To learn of the great sacrifice of Yeshua our Messiah and to receive that one. And Lord, we would ask that we would learn that one well and good because we know there's only one of them. Because we foul this one up, Lord, you're not going to do it again. You've done it once, and that's enough. So, Lord, we ask that from this study of Leviticus that you would make known to us in our spirits, down into our souls, down into the tabernacle that you've raised up, the great work of our high priest, the great work of the sacrifice of Yeshua Messiah for us. Teach us, Lord, instruct us in your ways so that we might walk correctly before you enjoying not just the mercy of God, but the full grace of God, the full gift of you, Lord. And if there be any person who's not quite come to terms with that, Lord, stir their soul up so that they'll ask of brethren to know you and to receive you. Thank you, Lord, for this congregation. Thank you for every family here. Draw us together, unify us, knit us together, Lord in our common bonds and worship of you. And Lord, cause our relationships to be sincere and honorable and correct before you and with one another. Let us be truly unified in you. I ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720 720- 968 Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.